the majestic ship in front of you is bigger than you imagined. As you board the Titanic, Captain Edward Smith himself greets you. Your trip will begin shortly. By the time the liner stops at Cheborg in Queenstown, over 2,200 passengers and crew will be on board, embarking on their transatlantic trip. The Titanic is ready to sail, and you hear the horns from the deck as you wave goodbye to the people below. But just a few minutes later, you hear panic rising on the deck. You run up to the railings to see what's going on. It's another ship coming too close. The sight of it says SS City of New York. Titanic has barely left the dock, but it looks like there's about to be a collision. The captain manages to steer clear of the other ship within just a few feet. Phew, that was close. The ship is scheduled to arrive in New York a week later on April 17th. But that's only if things go according to plan. The weather is clear until Sunday the 14th. As the vessel crosses a cold front, it encounters huge waves and strong winds. That night is quiet, but cold. The Titanic starts getting warnings from other ships about drifting blocks of ice in the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. But this time, the great ship doesn't continue to travel at full speed. Instead, the captain slows her down. He wants to make sure the lookouts will have plenty of time to spot any icebergs along the way, even if it means arriving in New York behind schedule. It's 11.40 in the evening. Lookout Frederick Fleet spots a colossal iceberg right ahead. He immediately alerts the bridge. The first officer tells the steersman to go around the iceberg, and the rest of the crew members must stop the engines right away. Everyone on board is working together to avoid the obstacle. But in this story, the steersman doesn't panic. He immediately turns the wheel the right direction away from the iceberg. Many passengers have already been awoken by the commotion and jostling. Some go on the deck in their nightgowns and pajamas to see what's going on. A few peek over the right side of the ship to get a closer look. You and everyone else watch anxiously with white-knuckle grips on the railing. The stress and cold make you shiver. You can't help but wonder if the Titanic will collide with the iceberg. It's getting closer and closer. Onlookers hold their breath. It's so quiet you could hear a pin drop. And then, within a mere inch, the ship slowly sails by the ice monster. There was no contact, no gap ripped in the hull hundreds of feet long that would allow water to flood into the lower compartments. Everyone starts clapping and hugging each other. After doing all the necessary checks, the captain officially announces that everything is all right. He invites the passengers on the deck to come inside for a hot cup of tea before they go back to their cabins. You follow the group and see the captain leaving to go report the incident. He also alerts other ships in the North Atlantic to slow down and be on the lookout. Amongst those ships is the Carpathia. Nope, she continues on her course. No need to come to Titanic's rescue tonight. RMS Titanic finally reaches its destination on April 17, 1912. It's eight hours late, but it's safe. Thousands of people come to the New York docks to admire the most luxurious ship in the world. It had a successful first voyage. Before getting off the ship, some passengers exchange addresses to write letters to each other. Like tennis players Richard Norris and Carl Baer. 
Both were on board the Titanic. But this time, Norris didn't spend hours in the cold water of the North Atlantic trying to help other passengers, almost losing his legs to hypothermia. And Bear was never on a lifeboat with his girlfriend, where he asked her to marry him. No, this time, he did it with friends and family around, and they all celebrated the engagement. The two tennis players end up playing their first match together later in 1912. Norris became one of the best players of his generation and won the Davis Cup five times. Margaret Brown was going back to the U.S. to see her sick grandchild. This time, she didn't have to help passengers get on lifeboats and never got on lifeboat six herself. When Brown gets off the ship, she runs to her grandson's side. This time, she never met the crew or the captain of the Carpathia to give them an honorary silver cup. She kept doing philanthropic work, but she never became known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. Violet Jessup never liked the idea of sailing in the North Atlantic because she knew how bad the weather could be. She was cautious, having just survived a crash a few months earlier. It was on the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic. But her friends convinced her to join the legendary ship's crew. This time, she was never called on deck to help passengers and never boarded lifeboat 16. She continued working on the Titanic until her retirement. Meaning, she was never taken on as a nurse of the Britannic. And in November 1915, it didn't become the third shipwreck Jessup would survive. Bandmaster Wallace Hartley went on the voyage to make new possible contacts for future work. But he kept playing to entertain passengers. This time, he never played music to a panicked crowd of people while the ship was sinking. He survives. He goes home to his fiancée, gets married, and starts a family. He continues entertaining people on the North Atlantic run. This time, his mourning fiancée never received his violin, and the historic Titanic memorabilia was never sold in 2013 for $1.7 million. Bertha Maine met the love of her life, Quig Baxter, in Brussels while he was traveling with his mother and sister. Baxter wanted to take Maine with him, so he secretly booked her a cabin under the name Mrs. de Villiers. This time, he never had to guide his family to a lifeboat. His family met his girlfriend when they got off the ship, not on lifeboat 6. This time, Baxter survived. He returned to Canada with his girlfriend, and she never went back to Europe alone. Maine's nephew would never find a shoebox in her closet with memories from the Titanic. Dorothy Gibson was playing bridge that night with a couple of New York bankers. When she went back to her stateroom with her mother, she never heard that long, sickening crunch and never got on Lifeboat 7. And in May 1912, she doesn't star in a movie about surviving the Titanic because there was no crash to survive. The year was 1854, and the SS Arctic the fastest passenger liner of its time, set out to cross the Atlantic. As it sailed through the misty veil, it slowly disappeared into the unknown. The Collins Line, an American shipping company, was started in 1818 and only began seriously trading in the transatlantic by 1835. Its steamships crossed the Atlantic from Liverpool to New York within just 10 days. Doesn't sound like a great speed today, I know. But back then, the same thing took other ships several weeks. Light on the water with their wooden hulls, powering through with a strong steam engine, 
those steamships were the favorite choice for many high-profile people. What could go wrong with such an advanced ship, they thought. This reminds me of some other ship everyone believed to be unsinkable. But anyway, back to the Collins Line. It grew to be a serious contender on transatlantic routes, with only one other competitor, the Cunard's Line. It was a British company also aiming to be the main force through the Arctic Passage. In 1835, the company received a new ship that traveled to Liverpool and came back to New York with the largest cargo ever at that time. From then, the Collins Line was steadily growing. It seemed like there would only be future successes for it. Unfortunately, their lavish ships became costly to run with the amount of coal used. Massive power along with weak wooden hulls meant they needed many repairs after each voyage. So, every trip ended up being expensive. But since the ships were safe and had a great reputation, people were willing to pay the price, and the company was definitely not in crisis. They had achieved something no one had managed to do before them. Like I told you, their ships crossed the Atlantic in a whopping 10 days. And Edward Collins, the owner, was very determined to maintain the pace. Their five ships easily outran the Cunard's line of only three. With this great praise, it provided more attention. Though the Cunard's ships were slower with their iron hulls, they believed there was still profit regardless of how slowly they sailed. Among Collins' ships, the Arctic, the third of them to be launched, was the largest, reaching 284 feet long with two side-lever steam engines, each with 1,000 horsepower. The paddle wheels made 16 revolutions a minute when at full speed. At the time of its launch, the press called it the most stupendous vessel ever constructed in the United States. But glamour and fame couldn't avoid what would come next. On the 27th of September, the Arctic was on its journey from Liverpool to New York, continuing a speed pace through the thick fog. It's possible that by that moment, after four years of record-breaking trips, the crew became overconfident with their sailing and the ship. Going only 50 miles from Newfoundland, they carelessly continued through the fog with no radio contact, sonar, or any other form of identifying objects equipped only with Morse code. A smaller ship, the SS Vesta, which operated as a fishing vessel, often worked around Newfoundland. It was passing through the same path as the Arctic and crashed into its side. Shocked by the collision, the captain of the Arctic offered help to the much smaller Vesta. But it was soon clear that the damage that seemed minor on the Arctic was far worse. Beneath the waterline, a hole was letting water into the hull. The cost of the much faster wooden hull now seemed less valuable. They steered toward land, trying to plug the holes, but they weren't doing so well, and the seawater continued to pour in, filling up higher and pushing the ship down. And finally, once the engine room was full, it put out the boilers, taking away the massive power the Arctic was once legendary for. They moved slowly until coming to a complete stop. The ship continued to sink, and the order was to abandon it. At the time, maritime law allowed for the Arctic to carry only six lifeboats, only capable of saving 180 people. The crew and some of the passengers managed to push their way aboard and took most of the seats on those boats. 
things were pretty wild, and everyone forgot about their manners, not letting the ladies and the youngest ones board first. It took four hours for the Arctic to sink. 150 crew and 250 passengers were on board. Those that weren't able to find a lifeboat made a desperate attempt to build their own rafts from parts of the ship. Two days later, only three boats made it safely to the shore. The other three were never found. Believe it or not, the rescue party also saved some people that had been clinging to the wreckage for two days. Unlike the crew, the captain went down with the Arctic, but amazingly survived. He would be only one of 85 people that made it out of the 400 on board. They say nothing is ever lost, and it's true. Let's discover ships frozen in time. The first one is truly fascinating. Here, the Antikytheria shipwreck. It's a Greek trading ship from the first century BCE. It's located on the east side of the Greek island of Antikythera and at the merging point of the Aegean and Mediterranean seas. Around 2,000 years later, in 1900, a group of Greek sponge divers discovered the wreck. They were going to Tunisia, yet they were forced to find shelter from a storm on a nearby island. Since they couldn't go anywhere due to the storm, they decided to look for sponges until the weather got calmer. One of the divers discovered the shipwreck at depths of around 130 feet. Imagine someone going for a sponge hunt, but getting out to the surface with archaeological treasures. The captain of the sponge boat talked to the Greek officials about what they had found. The officials sent two ships to the wreckage. The salvage operation was successful and discoveries are now in Greece's National Archaeological Museum in Athens. The findings included three life-sized marble horses, jewelry, coins, and hundreds of works of art, including a seven-foot-tall colossus statue of Hercules. Among these treasures, Antikythera Ephebe, a bronze statue of a young man, caught more attention. Because the Ephebe doesn't comply with any familiar iconographic model, and there are no known copies of his type, he held a spherical object in his hand. Scholars have different theories of who that person could be, but they are not in a consensus yet. More than 70 years later, Jacques-Yves Cousteau and his team went to the area and recovered hundreds more artifacts and the remains of four people. Interestingly, they discovered a complex set of interlocking gears capable of predicting the movement of the sun, moon, and several planets. The mechanism can also show the times of solar and lunar eclipses years into the future. Think of this Antikythera mechanism as an early computer calendar, you know, to plan significant events like agricultural activities, religious rituals, and Olympic games. These artifacts found in the Antikythera wreckage are some of the most important findings in modern archaeology. Just the Antikythera mechanism itself has changed our perception of the limits of ancient technology. The mechanism has a sophisticated design and was made over a thousand years ago. After all these amazing discoveries, experts believe that the wreckage site has remained largely unexplored and is mostly because of its location and the landscape of the seafloor on which the ship rests. The wreck is too deep for scuba divers but too shallow to use something like a submersible. A survey made on the seafloor in 2012 showed evidence of a second wreck about 800 feet to the south. It's clear that this area has a lot to offer humanity. What would happen if those sponge hunters didn't go to the area? Scientists found a shipwreck in Antarctica at the bottom of the Weddell Sea 107 years after it sank. The name of the ship was Endurance, and it was the lost vessel of Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. 
Scientists who laid eyes on it decades later say it is among the greatest undiscovered shipwrecks ever. That is why they filmed the whole discovery. The video shows the remains of the Endurance and proves it is still in remarkable condition. It has been sitting in 10,000 feet of water for over a century, yet it looks like it sank very recently. So the story goes like this. The ship was crushed by ice and sank in 1915. Shackleton and his crewmates had to escape by themselves in small lifeboats. From then on, it was all about survival. Shackleton imagined to get his crew to safety, then the ship sank. Yes, this is a pretty impressive story, but why did scientists prize this ship? Firstly, Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition sailed to make the first land crossing of Antarctica. Yes, the crew was trapped in ice, but the intention was important. Secondly, it's about the challenge itself of finding the shipwreck. The Weddell Sea is almost always covered in thick sea ice. You know, the same ice that made the Endurance sink. Getting near the presumed sinking location is super hard, let alone being able to conduct research. Experts of the modern expedition team foresaw the time when the lowest extent of Antarctic sea ice would come using satellite images. They realized that the weather was in their favor to start an expedition. Dr. John Shears said that they have successfully completed the world's most difficult shipwreck search, fighting against constantly shifting sea ice, blizzards, and temperatures decreasing to negative 0.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeesh, I can't imagine the worst conditions in Antarctica if these conditions are in their favor. Lastly, look at this. It's timbers. They're very much intact. Plus, you can read the ship's name. It's still visible. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.